Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. As we go to God's word this morning, let's ask the Lord's direction on our study. Father, thank you for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that as we study your word, we come to understand truth as it is, objectively in reality as you have created it. Father, as we stand before your word, it is God the Holy Spirit who takes your word and applies it to our life, and it is God the Holy Spirit who takes it as a spotlight upon our soul and upon our thinking to challenge us to conform to your word and not to conform to the lust patterns of our sin nature or the dictates of the world system around us. Now, Father, as we study today, may our understanding of who you are be expanded and that our appreciation for your grace uh, be increased. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Kings chapter 14. Second Kings chapter 14. Now, I would suggest there's not a single person in this congregation who has not at one time or another in their life faced some calamity, some crisis, some adversity or disappointment, or heartache where they didn't question the justice of God and wonder what in the world is God doing? Why did he allow this to happen to me? And how can I really trust God if he let this kind of thing take place? And if we just extrapolate that out to uh, larger events in life, that uh, mega events in the course of history, when we look at wars or famines or when we look at uh, Events such as the Holocaust uh, that took place during World War II where over six million Jews lost their lives uh, because of the persecution, the anti-Semitism of the uh, Nazi government in Germany, then, then we see why people ask this question of God, how can we really believe that God is a just God? And it comes down to the fact that, that often our starting point in asking those questions is our own limited knowledge and our own limited experience. For we tend to load words like justice and righteousness and fairness with, a, with, with baggage that comes from our background and our experience and from our culture. And one thing we learn when we look at the word 
is that we must come to understand that righteousness is grounded in the character and the thinking of God because he is omniscient, he knows all things. And because he is righteous, he always does the right thing, but righteousness means it conforms to the character, to his own character. And his character is, is holy, it is distinct, it is totally apart from anything else that we have ever seen or experienced. So when we look at, at, at God and we study his character and his attributes, we, at, at some level we can come to understand them because there is a point of analogy with things that we do see in experience. But at another level, we don't really understand these attributes as they are in him because he is completely distinct from his creation. So there is only a measure, an analogical way in which we come to understand uh, the essence of God. And so that has to be our starting point is righteousness as God defines it in his word as he has explained it to us. And then we can come to see how the things that happen in life perhaps uh, do indeed fit his righteousness and his justice. So on the screen I have the ten attributes of God we usually focus on. We talk about his essence, that he is sovereign as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. He has the right to rule over his creation, and he does so on the basis of his infinite knowledge, and on the basis of his perfect character, his perfect righteousness. So he is righteous, and he is just, and he is also love. And in human experience, somehow we try to set these apart as being uh, contradictory concepts. How can you be righteous and at the same time love? And yet what we, we, we fall prey to this kind of compartmentalization in the way we talk about God as if these attributes are independent of each other. But if you just think about yourself and how someone might describe you in a number of different ways, they might describe you if they see you in certain circumstances as being very kind and very gentle and very loving. And then they might see you at other times as being rather harsh and being angry. And then they might see you at other times as being rather strict and very, very, very stern. But all of those attributes that may uh, characterize you are all part of the same person. They are not uh, isolated from one another. They are all part of the uh, of your total at, uh, package of attributes. And that is how we should look at God, even though we break these apart as a prism breaks apart uh, the, the, the light into its different components. When we talk about the character of God and we reflect on certain dimensions of his character, we do that in order to come to understand these different elements in him. And in terms of a teaching situation, we do it for various pedagogical reasons. But in reality, all of these fit into one unified whole in the, in, in the character of God, and they are not uh, one does not contradict another. His righteousness is a loving righteousness. It is a loving, knowing, truthful, unchanging righteousness. His knowledge is a righteous, uh, truthful, unchanging uh, knowledge. His power is a righteous, holy, loving, infinite 
eternal power. So all of these fit together in, in a way that where they do not contradict one another. Sometimes we talk about God in terms of his, his integrity, focusing on four specific attributes and how they uh, interact or intersect with one another. And as I read in Psalm 111 uh, this morning, there's an emphasis on each of these attributes in that particular psalm as they relate to God's covenant with Israel. And the purpose of the praise psalm there is to praise God for his faithfulness to his covenant, to his compassion, his grace there. The, the Hebrew word that's translated there is one that we've seen many times, the word hesed, meaning God's uh, loyal love. And the psalm affirms the absolute love that God has for his people, Israel, the, descent, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he does not ever do anything that is not in line with that faithful, loyal love, and he does not desert his covenant, which he laid out to Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 20 to the end of Exodus and many chapters in Leviticus, and it is uh, restated in the book of Deuteronomy, and it includes that certain conditions that God stated that if you really want to experience the full blessing that I have for you while you are in the land, then you need to walk in obedience. And if you walk in obedience, if you live in obedience, he instructed the Jews, then these things I will do for you. There will be an abundance uh, of your crops. You will have agricultural uh, prosperity and fertility, and you will have military success whenever you are confronted by your enemies and there will be an abundance of, of birth. The womb will be fruitful. And all of these were part of the promises that he made if Israel was obedient. But then he said, if you are disobedient, then I will bring certain uh, judgments upon you. And those judgments are just as much a part of God's love as his blessing. And yet we, we come from a, a worldview in our culture that wants to set these apart as if they are mutually contradictory that, well, I believe in a loving God, you may hear people say, as if a God of justice and a God of righteousness is somehow incompatible with a God of love. And then others may say, well, I believe in a righteous God. But that righteousness seems to be talked about as if it is separate from his love. But they, as I've said already, they all fit together. Now, this morning, we're going to cover a huge amount of territory. We're going to begin in 2 Kings chapter 14, and we're going to end in 2 Kings chapter 17. I hope you brought your dinner with you. <laughs> Last time I put the beginnings of this chart up so that you could see uh, the relation of the relationship between the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel and the kings in the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, as you look at that chart, and we'll put that chart up on the, uh, will be out on the uh, Dean Bible website, but as you look at that chart, you could easily become overwhelmed by some of those details. So since we're just going to focus on the northern kingdom and the kings in the northern kingdom uh, this morning, I'm going to just take the uh, bottom half off. And previously we've talked about Jehu, who God called to bring judgment on the idolatrous and evil house of Ahab. 
and he wiped out all of those who were infected by the horrible sins of Ahab and Jezebel, uh, including uh, uh, Jehoahaz, I mean, including Ahaziah, uh, his predecessor, and the king in the south, and so he, uh, who was married to Athaliah, and so there is the removal of that evil, and Athaliah was the only one who survived, and then God uh, also dealt with her uh, at the time of uh, Joash in the southern kingdom. So we've looked at these first uh, two descendants of Jehu, Jehoahaz and Jehoash, and because Jehu was incomplete in his obedience to God, because he only did uh, partially what God told him to do, he didn't return the northern kingdom to an obedience and worship of God, he only uh, removed the house of Omri, and then he removed all of the uh, Baal worship and worship of the Asherah and the temples, but he left the two golden calves that uh, Jeroboam I had established in, in Bethel and up in, uh, up in Dan in the north, and he continued to walk in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And that just seems like a drumbeat that we see in these chapters. It is the cadence to which the kings in the north continue to march, and there is this downward trajectory in the, in the north as they continue generation after generation to reject God. And yet, again and again, we see how God reaches out to them. He sends uh, numerous prophets to them during this time period, prophets that you know of from uh, books later on in the, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, Hosea, uh, Amos, uh, Joel. Uh, these are some of the prophets that come during this time. And so God is continuing to treat them and deal with them in grace to call them back to obedience to the, uh, to the Mosaic law. And so starting in chapter 14 down through 17, we see the decline, the deterioration, the depravity of the northern kingdom. And it ends in chapter 17 when under King Hosea, who is the last king in the north, the northern kingdom is defeated by the Assyrians, and they are wiped out and deported, and the uh, Israelites in the north and the ten tribes are relocated to various places in the Assyrian Empire. This was the typical policy of the Assyrians, was to take an ethnic population that they conquered and then move them, split them up, move them to different areas of the empire so that they could not come back together again and instigate a revolt uh, against the uh, Syrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was one of the most brutal and violent uh, people uh, in, the, in the ancient world. So we see as we come into Second uh, Kings chapter, uh, chapter uh, 14, uh, the introduction of Jeroboam II beginning in verse uh, 23 of um, Chapter 14, he's mentioned briefly in verses 15 through 16, and then he is, uh, his reign is covered in verses uh, 23 to 29. Uh, from there we'll go to, um, we'll see that his reign, that's the uh, light blue, pale blue uh, rectangle there, that that is an extremely long reign. That's the longest reign that we see among the kings of the north, and it is a time of God's grace before judgment. 
because there's tremendous prosperity that occurs at that time, but it is their abuse of prosperity and their failure to uh, turn to the Lord in the midst of that prosperity that really sets the stage for their final judgment. It confirms them in their apostasy. And there's a principle there that often God's grace to us uh, prior to judgment is a, a period that simply confirms us in our own sin and confirms, confirms our own rebellion towards God. And this was what was true of the nation Israel. And notice when you look at this chart that it is followed by uh, Zechariah. And just look how short that period is, six months. And then Shalom, you're going to have to go back up to the top. Uh, Shalom only is the king for a month. And then Menachem, who's king for ten years, and he is one of the most brutal and evil rulers in the northern kingdom. And then Pekahiah uh, is his uh, successor for two years. And then uh, Pekah, who is, as you see there, he, his, his time period seems to overlap with the others, and that's because he's basically set up an alternate government across the Jordan. And finally, he gets fed up with all of the... Uh, uh, instability and the uh, lack of righteousness uh, among those in Samaria, and so he will assassinate uh, Pika, will assassinate uh, Pekahiah, and then uh, he is in turn assassinated by Hosea. These uh, last uh, six kings, Zechariah, Shalom, Menachem, Pekahiah, Pika, and Hosea, five are assassinated. This is not a time of tremendous national uh, stability. And they are falling apart nationally, not because they're following false systems of economics or false systems of politics or because they have a bad military and they put their priorities uh, in all of these things in the wrong place. Their, their collapse is due to their spiritual collapse. And that's the point in this whole section is to demonstrate that the real problems that a nation has and the real problems that an individual has do not come from having uh, secondary uh, systems of, of, of failure. They come because the root is a failure to trust God. The root is a spiritual problem, and all of the other problems are just manifestations of that core spiritual problem. And if the core spiritual problem isn't fixed then it doesn't matter what happens politically or economically. It doesn't matter what happens militarily because eventually the individual or the, the nation will collapse, will implode. And what we're seeing in this, this last 50-year uh, or 50 to 80-year period, if you include Jeroboam II, then is that collapse. That occurs. Jeroboam gets a lot of things right. He's a great administrator. He's uh, militarily competent. He extends the borders of the northern kingdom almost to the extent that they were under Solomon. And under his time, there is tremendous economic prosperity, and they're no longer being uh, held under the thumb of uh, Hazael in, uh, in uh, of Damascus or his son Ben-Hadad because the Assyrians have come in from the northeast and they have defeated the uh, Arameans or the, or the Syrians and there's also uh, some other 
uh, groups that are on the rise on their northern border that just pretty much uh, set the stage for the collapse of, of the Arameans. And so in that vacuum, Jeroboam is able to regain much territory, but it, it is a pseudo-success. Oh, they love it. There's, there is definite prosperity there, and there is definitely military conquest, but it's not because they're so great. It's because their enemies are just worse and less prepared. And so God deals with them in grace and expanding the empire, and he deals with them in grace and giving them uh, economic prosperity as an opportunity for them to turn back to him, and they just use that as an opportunity to become further enmeshed in their rebellion against him. So let's take a look, just briefly summarize some of these men. As you see, there's uh, some of their reigns are so short, there's not much to say about them. Uh, as you look at this period, and I encourage you to take some time to go read through these chapters, come back next time, and we'll look at at what's happening in the southern kingdom, but I thought it would be best to just take this in sort of a broad patch and deal with this, this trend in the north. We begin with Jeroboam II in Second uh, Kings 14, 15 to 16, and verses 23 to 29. He is the fourth one, as you uh, see he, uh, uh, in the line, uh, or the uh, one, two, third one, yeah, third one in the line from Jehu. The third generation down, uh, counting Jehu, he's the fourth. And uh, remember, God had promised, uh, prophesied that Jehu would only last to the fourth generation, which would be Zechariah. So he is also the sign of grace before judgment to the house of Jehu. He is, as I stated, he's ambitious. He's an administrative genius and a military power. He expands north to... Um, let me see. Yeah. He ex, uh, expands the territory uh, to the north almost as far, far as it had been under the uh, in the time of Solomon. He goes to Hamath, which is located there at the very north boundary. It's simply a tributary. They don't have full control there. And he also extends the uh, kingdom down to the south to the Sea of the Arabah. And if you look down the lower part of that map, you see this area south of the Dead Sea is called the Arabah. And actually, that was a term that covered uh, everything down the, the uh, Rift Valley here. This is an enormous fault line that, that goes all the way down, in fact, all the way down to the southern tip of, of Africa. And, it is, and the term Arabah is often used to describe the entire Rift Valley, all the way up north of the Sea of Galilee up to uh, Mount Hermon. So what is actually being said when it talks about his, his expansion during that time is that he has gone from the, uh, from the north all the way down, uh, and this is about 150 miles, all the way down to the uh, upper parts of the Jordan. It's all under, under Israelite control again. But this is the last period of prosperity in the north. It is the last time when God is extending grace to them, and it is a grace before judgment. And what happens during this time is that in the midst of this economic prosperity, there is great injustice. There, uh, there is a great divide between the wealthy and the poor. There is no justice in the land, and the 
rulers uh, exercise power for their own benefit, which is something you see in a paganized culture, is the self-centeredness of those in power and their abuse of those that are under their authority. This is a message we find in uh, some of the prophets that are operating uh, during this time period as they are bringing that announcement of judgment to the um, to the rulers and to the leaders in the in the uh, northern kingdom. The basic assessment that we have of Jeroboam II is that he did evil. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and this is stated in chapter 14, uh, verse 24. Even though there were positive things that happened uh, in terms of some of his accomplishments, the spiritual assessment is that he, like all of the other rulers in the north, is, um, is evil. But it's also a time period of God's grace, as God's grace has is, is extended to them in terms of their uh, economic prosperity and military prosperity. Prosperity. It's the first time in uh, a generation that they have really had any measure of stability and peace in the northern kingdom. And so it shows us again that God in his justice also extends grace to those before he will uh, lower the boom and bring about the judgment uh, that he has promised. Well, at the people in the north rejected that extension of grace, which happens so often in history. Never in history has a nation ever passed the prosperity test, and it's few individuals that truly pass the prosperity test. But no nation has ever ever done that because once they get prosperous, they often put their hopes and dreams into that the, the details of life, the economics, the, uh, the luxury that they have, and they become self-satisfied in their security and get their eyes off of God and put it onto self. And that is always the core of all arrogance. And there are different manifestations of it, but it all boils down to uh, self-absorption. If you just think about the United States of America and our culture over the last 40 years, and how we have emphasized self. Everybody has to have good self, a good self-image. I think Hitler had a good self-image. Stalin had a good self-image. They had a tremendous amount of confidence in themselves, and they were extremely evil. Uh, the Bible never talks about a self-image or self-esteem. And uh, In fact, we're challenged not to esteem ourselves uh, as we shouldn't. We're not to think highly of ourselves. Our confidence is in God not in our own abilities and our own capabilities, uh, but to put our confidence in God who is the one who supplies uh, all of our resources. And that's what we often see in these kings is when they get their eyes off of God and trust in uh, either alliances with other nations or trust in their own resources, then there is uh, there is judgment, there is failure. So Jeroboam uh, dies after a... Uh, lengthy reign, and he uh, 41 years, and then he is replaced by his son Zechariah. Zechariah is the last of Jehu's line. Let me go back to the chart again, so you can uh, have that to orient to the the timeline here. Uh, Zechariah has a 
short reign of six months from 753 to 752. He's the end of the line for Jehu's line, and God fulfills his promise, his prophecy. Remember, one of the qualifications of a, of a biblical prophet was that all of their prophecies would come true 100% of the time. If they missed one, then that was the death penalty. God never makes mistakes. He never misses a prophecy. So Zechariah is uh, only around for six months. His reign is covered in Second uh, Kings, uh, chapter 14, verses 28 to, to 19, or 28 to 29, rather, and then in 15, verses 8 through 12. And again, his assessment in chapter 15, verse 9, he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. See, that's just the ongoing drumbeat throughout this period, is that they continue to reject God. They bought into a completely false uh, system of thought, which is oriented around a false religious system. Every system of thought ultimately is grounded in a religious system. Whatever it may be, whether it is Marxism, it's religious. Whether it's socialism, it's religious. Whether it is uh, some sort of system such as uh, 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 um, rationalism or empiricism, they all end up being in some level of religion because they say something about ultimate reality. And that is often the case when you have uh, abuses in any system. That is often because they have brought in uh, incompatible uh, ideas. And so, again, we see a, a ruler who will not turn the people back to God, and he is assassinated. Now, this is God's judgment on the nation as well, that when you have a nation that sees their leader assassinated again and again and again, you can just imagine the chaos, the, the confusion, the uncertainty that's happening on a day-to-day basis. Can you imagine trying to do business in a community that over a period of 20 years that you overturn your government, your rulership uh, every, uh, in some cases, six months, one month, three years, and you get a totally new administration that imposes completely different uh, laws and mandates upon the citizenry. You, you can't do business in an environment like that. There can't be any kind of economic uh, stability at all, and so it would have uh, tremendous consequences in terms of the value of money, in terms of uh, productivity, in terms of just the, the, the mental state of the, of the people, and they be, basically became the slaves of the, of, of the monarchy in the north. So Shalom, the son of Jabesh, we're told in 1510, assassinates, conspires, and assassinates uh, Zechariah. The assassination is evil. It is murder. Assassination seems to almost glorify what it really is. It's just downright murder of a ruler. It is the epitome of, of an anti-authority position. And being anti-authority is one of the worst sins in the Scripture. Why? Because that was the sin of Satan that takes us back to his arrogance and his rejection of God. Well, Shalom is only the ruler for a month, before he is taken out by Menachem. Menachem is the son of Gadi, and he assassinates Shalom, and then he imposes 
a, an evil, brutal regime upon the north. Uh, there's excessive taxation because they have to pay tribute during this time to uh, the uh, Assyrians who are beginning to come down now and to threaten them. Uh, one of the examples of his, of his uh, uh, brutality is that we're told that when he became king, he attacked a town in the north called uh, Tipsha. And some locate this in the north, in uh, northern Syria, up near uh, the Euphrates, and others locate this at further south in Samaria. We're not not sure, but we're told in verse 16, chapter 15, verse 16. Then from Tirzah, Menachem attacked Tipsa, all who were there, and its territory, because they did not surrender. Therefore, he attacked it. In other words, they rejected his leadership after he had assassinated Shalom. They remained uh, antagonistic to him, so he went in and uh, conquered them. And all the women who were with child, he ripped open. So he brutally murders every pregnant woman in the town. And so that's just a little bit of an idea of the character of his reign over the next ten years. And the assessment's given in verse 18, and you can state it by memory uh, by now, I'm sure. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart, who did, he did not depart all, the, all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. And then there's intensified pressure against the north. Uh, Pul, who is Tiglath-Pileser, uh, the king of Assyria, uh, came against the land, and uh, Menachem gave, gave him a thousand uh, talents, a thousand talents, that's equivalent to 37 tons of silver. That is, and that is why the taxation was so high. So now the people are virtually enslaved by the by the Assyrians, so that everything that they produce has to go to paying off this this tribute to try to buy security uh, from the Assyrians. Well, after ten years, uh, one of Menachem's commanders turns it uh, over against him, and he has been uh, operating independently in the Transjordan area and he leads 50 of his men across the Jordan into Samaria to assassinate uh, Menachem. And so he sets up now as king, and this is the uh, seventh, actually he's the seventh dynasty to be established uh, in the north, uh, uh, Pekahiah rather. Uh, So Pekahiah establishes that, and then he... Um, is in turn established, uh, is assassinated by one of his commanders, uh, Pekah, who led 50 men, uh, excuse me, Pekahiah, uh, is a, de- uh, uh, is a descendant. I got confused in my notes there between Pekah and Pekahiah. Pekahiah is the son of Menachem. He continues the evil, uh, but then he is the one who is assassinated by one of his commanders, Pekah, who led 50 men from Gilead across the Jordan to assassinate him. And so Pekah is the one who had set up the alternate empire, uh, the, uh, our monarchy across the Jordan. So Pekah comes in, sets up a, a, a government there, and he reigns from uh, 740 to 732. 752 indicates when he originally set up his alternate government in the Transjordan. But Pekah continues the same evil idolatrous path. But he's going to now resist the Assyrians. 
But by now that becomes a sin because God has already announced that this judgment is coming. There's nothing they can do about it. And so when you have these last two kings, Pekah and Hosea, and they want to resist the Assyrians, that that resistance becomes a sin because God has already announced their judgment. Now, sometimes I hear people make this uh, comparison with the United States, as if we're already, it's predetermined that, that we're on a decline and it, we're, it's predetermined that we're going to collapse. And that is certainly the trajectory if we continue as things are. But I don't recall God appearing to anybody lately and announcing that that is exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that. Uh, we may indeed see a turning of the people in the United States back to God. And we may see another a change take place. That happened in the southern kingdom of Israel under uh, Hezekiah. It'll happen again under uh, Josiah. That there, there will be this this turning. And even though eventually there will be a fall, uh, that's the way of all kingdoms. Uh, the, the the decline that we see today is not necessarily uh, the final decline. So don't uh, uh, don't act as if it's predetermined and written in stone. We are to act as if there will be a turning and that through the teaching of God's word and the proclamation of the gospel that the people can turn back uh, back to God. Well, Pekah is on the, on the throne for two years, uh, for, for uh, uh, 12 years actually when he is, uh, or eight years when he's actually on the throne in, uh, uh, with the combined northern kingdom and then uh, Tiglath-Pileser invades, uh, captures the northern territories in the northern kingdom of Naphtal, uh, Gilead, the Golan Heights, and those people are deported. And uh, in light of that defeat, uh, Hosea uh, leads an assassination squad against Pekah and kills him. And there's some indication from Assyrian inscriptions that Assyria backed Hosea and had a role in uh, the assassination of Pika. So this is the trajectory of the northern kingdom that ends in their defeat and the people are taken out in uh, divine discipline and they are judged. Now, if you had lived through that period, you would wonder, as you saw the brutality of these various rulers and you saw the brutality of the Assyrians, uh, you might wonder, is God really just? Is God really fair? Is God really righteous? Is God really a loving God to let all of this happen to us? And yet this is exactly what the Word of God states. Second Kings chapter 17, beginning uh, in verse uh, 7, gives us the indictment. The indictment is based on the covenant, what God had promised. Imagine that. God had told them what would happen if they were disobedient. They were disobedient, and now God uh, judges them, and the cry would be, God's not very very fair. And the same thing happens to us individually and also to other nations throughout history. In verse 7 we read, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out up out of the land of Egypt. Notice how this is centered on the Exodus event. 
It identifies God as the one who brought them up out of Egypt. Not that golden calf that Jeroboam II had built in Bethel and in Dan, but the true God of Israel who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and delivered them from their slavery uh, to the Pharaoh. But um, they had feared other gods. They hadn't feared the Lord. They had put their trust in other gods, verse 8. And they um, walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before them. In other, instead of living according to the customs and the laws of the Mosaic law that God had given them, where there was real freedom and prosperity, they chose to follow the, the laws of the Canaanites. They chose to be like all of the other peoples on the earth. They rejected the great legacy that God had given them uh, in the Mosaic Law. And so they walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And then verse 9, Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. And if you read down through the whole chapter, they're, they're into demonism. Uh, they're into idolatrous worship. Uh, they are into human sacrifice. In verse 17, they cause their sons and the daughters to pass through the fire. They practice witchcraft and soothsaying. And that goes far beyond reading the uh, astrology column or going to an astrologer to have your palm read or various other forms of divination. They practiced uh, witchcraft and soothsaying, which is pure demonism, and they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now, this is all grounded back in the Mosaic Law. Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. See, it is the, the law and the judgment is grounded on this God who delivered them from Israel. And the first commandment is that you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything um, that is in heaven above, or excuse me, let me back up. Uh, first commandment is verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. God is, sets himself up as the head of state, so any devotion to any other god is an act of treason. And then the second commandment, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to, to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who uh, hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my uh, commandments. And then, see, in Leviticus 18.2, we have that commandment reiterated. Again, speak to the children of Israel, say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. Don't live like the Egyptians where you came from. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do. See, what's the, what's the judgment in chapter 17? Is that they did exactly what God told them uh, not to do. But there's always grace. There's always hope. Whenever there's disobedience, there's always the promise of grace and forgiveness. And this is what we have seen in our study of Deuteronomy 31 through 3, which uh, foretells of a time when God would restore the Israelites to the land. And the key verses in verse 2, 
where God has said in verse 1 that when you are scattered and you recall to mind all the things that I have told you, and you return to the Lord. And that's that Hebrew word shuv, meaning to turn back to God. And that's the same word that's used in 2 Kings 17.13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer. See, the sending the prophets is God's grace. He's not just a God of righteous judgment, but he's a God of grace who generation after generation reached out with the truth to those who were antagonistic to them, to those who had rejected him, to those who hated him, yet God continuously did the right thing. That's what love is. He challenged them to come back to the law. And so 17.13 says uh, that God sent all of his prophets saying what? Turn from your evil ways. That's that same Hebrew word, shuv. That's how you... So he's just calling them back to obey the law that God had set up. But you see, when man rejects God, man rejects absolutes. And so he rejects law. And he wants to make up law as it goes along. We see that in our culture. Uh, there are those who are conservative who think that we should go back to the Constitution. The Constitution uh, is interpreted in the light of the original intent of the founders. Uh, there are those who are called loose constructionists or liberals, and they want the uh, Constitution to be interpreted as a living document, that its meaning changes from generation to generation. And see, once you adopt that view, what you do is you're just going to make up laws as they go along, and it really doesn't matter what the law says. And that's why we have this problem with illegal immigration. We ignore the law because of various factors. But the law says to do one thing or another, and we have to abide by the law. We are a people who believe in the rule of law. But once you be, reject God, the rule of law really goes out because the rule of, God, of law really uh, implies that there is an external basis for absolutes. And that's the first thing to go. And so you become lawless. And as a nation, we are becoming a lawless nation. And the more we slip into relativism and make it up as we go along, the more lawless we will become, but there is always hope. It's the same hope that Israel had. It's the hope to turn back to God. And that comes through the preaching, the proclamation of his grace, that God in his love has provided the perfect solution. And that solution is through the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. There's always hope. We don't give up as long as we're alive. God is still in charge, and God can still change things. He can change your life. No matter how lawless you have become, God can still change things. And the command is the same. It is to turn back to God, to the believer, to turn back, to confess sin, and to begin walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. To the unbeliever, it is to uh, turn to God at the cross and to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then you will be given everlasting life. And so what we see in... These chapters in 2 Kings is an illustration of God's, of the total compatibility of God's justice and righteousness with his perfect, unchanging love. Love brings judgment because that's what's embedded in what? In the law. And once you throw out uh, the law and the absolutes, 
then you never can define justice. You can't define justice anymore. You can't define love anymore. And everything in the culture begins to deteriorate, fragment, and it just, it just picks up momentum as you go from year to year. But there's always hope, and that hope is in the truth of God's word and in trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to see how your love and your righteousness work together, how they are not incompatible but compatible, and that your righteousness demands a payment for sin, and that payment was made at the cross because in your love, which is demonstrated through giving your Son to us, uh, he paid the uh, sin penalty for us that we might have eternal life, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain and to put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. For those of us who are already saved, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the truth of your word and that we would realize its priority and that uh, we need to, if necessary, turn back to you in terms of uh, complete orientation to your word and the application of it to our thinking and to our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.